Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmer's Day, April 19th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, I eat at the Sci-Fi Dine-In, and in our main segment, Jim tells us the history of the Sci-Fi Dine-In restaurant at Disney's Hollywood Studios. And listeners, a quick word before we begin today. Due to scheduling difficulties, Jim and I couldn't record this show together, but never fear, for we came up with a plan. Jim's going to do his regular in-depth piece where he normally does, and I'm going to do the news and listener questions. And I've given Jim a set of writer's prompts, a few words about what's in the script, and asked him to riff on those, but he hasn't actually seen the show's script. What could possibly go wrong here? Nothing. So here it goes. Let's get started by bringing in the man whose word of the day is kuchisabishi, which in Japanese means when you're not hungry, but you eat because your mouth is lonely. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I don't know. Isn't that kind of like walking into a restaurant in Japan and then ordering something without actually understanding the menu? Steve Martin used to do a great bit about this, how you meant well, but then you accidentally ordered a shoe with cheese and then asked the waiter to shove it directly into your face. Oh, that's great, Jim. That's fantastic. And Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, CMCTXMom, Chris B, Bennett B, Sonia Miranda, KCuster2014, and Taydish. And the longtime subscribers, Duster72, P Marino 06, and Rob Geiger. Jim, these folks are the astronauts, lab workers, and small town residents whose day-to-day interactions with swamp creatures, med scientists, and space aliens were filmed for the movie clips in Disney's sci-fi dine-in restaurant. True story. Ah, yes. That's something along the lines of having the creature for the Black Lagoon as a co-worker, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you don't want to be that guy. It's your turn to refill the coffee maker, but please don't use the unfiltered swamp water again. I like my coffee black, not chunky. Oh, Jim, you're a card. And let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, first thing I wanted to point out, a lot, a lot more dining and park reservation availability seems to have dropped in Walt Disney World from June onward. And through some back channels, we asked Disney if they've upped the park capacity for June. They swear they haven't, uh, which is kind of interesting because all of a sudden, a lot more dining reservations became available. All right. The, uh, the other interesting thing that we're seeing is a Disneyland survey, you know, Disneyland's reopening. And now they're sending out questions for people who had planned to go to Walt Disney World in the past, but who did not have reservations. So the qu- survey questions include this. If not for the pandemic, how likely is it that you would have visited the Disneyland Resorts theme parks between March 2020 and April 2021? Assume that the parks would have been open and operating under normal conditions. And the prompts are definitely would have, probably would have, may or may not have, probably would not have, and definitely would not have. The more interesting question to me is this. How would the continued implementation of a theme park reservation system i.e. all guests would be required to obtain a reservation for park entry in advance, impacts your likelihood to visit the Disneyland Resort again in the future. And the prompts are, it makes me much more likely to visit. It makes me slightly more likely to visit. It makes no difference. It makes me slightly less likely to visit. 
and makes me much less likely to visit. What kind of person says they'd enjoy having to make park reservations going forward? All right, let's do some uh, listener questions. The first one up is from Joey, who writes in and says, I noticed that the MCU movies have made a ton more money for the Walt Disney Company since the purchase of both Lucasfilm and Marvel. And since Disney is putting so much into physical infrastructure parks wives for Star Wars, a seemingly wise investment in 2015, is it conceivable they could eventually open an MCU-themed galactic Star Cruiser-type hotel experience in California adjacent to the new Avengers campus? And Joey helpfully sent in a picture of Google Maps where he has drawn out uh, what looks like a parking lot next to uh, DCA and drawn in what looks like the Avengers Hotel. So yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a concept that Disney would love to export around the world. Like I think Paris is obviously another um, example of this. The big thing I think that they want to see is two things. One, um, what's the demand for the Star Wars Hotel, let's say a year after it opens? Like, can they sustain the sort of demand that they need to make their numbers? And the other thing is, is how difficult it's going to be to run that hotel that way. Because again, there's a ton of gameplay involved in that. They've never done anything like this before. And keeping people entertained for two consecutive days is a lot of work. They have the risk of overdoing it or underdoing it. And I think I think that's the, the big challenge there. Here's an email from our friend Tim, who writes in with this. Uh, here's something you might be interested in to do with the question about Disneyland being the focus of a lot of published media from the company. So this goes back to the uh, thing we talked about last week where we, we commented that most of the media that Disney puts out related to the parks focuses on Disneyland. So Tim writes in and says, we have a licensed Parker Brothers board game that was made in 2004 called Magic Kingdom. However, there's a big picture of Sleeping Beauty Castle on the box. The board is a map of the park, including things like the monorail station in Tomorrowland that are only in Disneyland, but there's no New Orleans Square and there is a Liberty Square. The game involves skipping around the park to be the first to visit different attractions. You can also see on some of the cards that there are descriptions of Disneyland attractions with pictures of Walt Disney World. I think whoever made this up must have been halfway done when they were hit in the head because it's so mixed up, it's funny. And so we have a bunch of pictures from Tim. And yeah, it's true. There's uh, the Tomorrowland monorail station right next to the Tomorrowland of Walt Disney World. It looks very, very strange. The other thing is that the, uh, the map on this, so again, it's, two, it's circa 2004. So uh, remember old Fantasyland with Toontown, right? It's there. But there's no Pirates of the Caribbean. There's no Space Mountain. But what's in the place of Space Mountain is Disneyland's Carousel of Progress. Also, the Astro Orbiter looks like it's Disneyland's Astro Orbiter. So it's all a very strange mashup of things. There's um, of theme park things. It's, it does have Walt Disney World's Adventureland because we can see Magic Carpets of Aladdin uh, in there. And Enchanted Tiki Room is in the Disneyland place in Adventureland, not in Disneyland. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's very strange. Jim, what do you think? That's kind of tough to picture. Sort of like the guys at Milton Bradley. If they designed a game about Walt Disney World while they were on LSD, it's like, wait, wait, hear me out. What if instead of Dumbo the Flying Elephant and the Mad Teacups, we put a mad elephant in a teacup? That's both economical and entertaining. 
All right. The next question is from Brian, who says, I'm wondering if you heard anything about Walt Disney World opening up AP sales, annual pass sales, anytime soon. We have three trips planned, May, October, and February, due to a glut of amassed DVC points. And we really can't afford Magic Gearway tickets for all three trips. Oh, for the days of no, no expiration tickets. I contacted guest services and got a read between the lines response from the cast member and was told, I need to be careful what I say about this when asked if he had heard when passes might return. The cast member specified procedures for returning tickets and applying value towards APs over the phone versus going to the ticket booths with a level of detail and certainly only to add on, quote, well, this is how we would do it if they came back. It had a real OJ if I did it vibe. Just wondering your thoughts. Love the show with Jim. Thanks for making so many of my trips so much better. So Brian, yeah, I think we will definitely see the return of annual passes. I'm not sure by May, but definitely by your October trip. And I think sort of June uh, of last year is when Disney stopped selling annual passes. And the reason why I think they're going to return is, is exactly your situation for DVC owners, right? And to your point, DVC owners won't buy into DVC if they don't have annual passes. It'll just depress the market. And as everyone knows, um, the sales from DVC get counted in theme park revenue for the Disney company. So whoever is the president of Walt Disney World uh, needs that money to keep coming in to make him or her look good. Uh, and that's why we will have DVC sales forever and ever going forward. So I think by June, which is when the last set of um, um, annual passes were sold, we, we should expect to hear something about DVC. And I do think if it comes back it, uh, or when uh, annual passes come back, DVC owners will be the first um, to get offers. So that's what I think, Brian, and, and good luck. Here's a note from Melissa. It says, hi, Lynn and Jim. I'm visiting the parks this week and noticed that many guests seem to be using fast passes, even though fast pass is closed for the general population. How are they getting access? Thanks. All right, so a couple of things, uh, Melissa. One is uh, the disability access service, so the DAS cards make use of the FastPass line. So you'll notice it's actually called, not called FastPass now, it's called the alternate access uh, line, and that's what it's for. Um, the other thing, and God love them, the people at uh, Rise of the Resistance have probably been handing these things out like candy over the last week because Rise of the Resistance has not been having a good week, but they do give out FastPasses as make goods for rides being down extensively. So there are a couple of days this week where rides just had abysmal days where, you know, at five o'clock they hadn't gotten past, you know, boarding group 70 or whatever. Um, my sense is that in that case, people who spent all day waiting around for the ride to return, you know, only to be frustrated, probably got a handful of fast passes good for rides throughout Walt Disney World. Um, the other place or the other reason uh, that you can use the fast pass line is VIP tours. And there may also be some sort of membership-only scenarios in Walt Disney World in which uh, you can also get access to FastPass. So that's that. Here's an email from Tony who says, I'm planning a trip in mid-October. What can I expect my trip to be like in terms of restaurants being open, FastPass is coming back, attractions opening or reopening, night shows, crowds, and other related things? Will capacity still be at 35%? So mid-October, no, I don't think the parks will be at 35% capacity. And, and for this, Tony, I'm looking at projections of how many adults are going to be vaccinated in the United States and by when. So I think we should be at 200 million adults vaccinated sometime by late June, early July, depending on how this thing with Johnson & Johnson gets resolved. 
So for October, we should be darn close to every adult in the United States who wants a vaccine having access to a vaccine. And I'm told that's what Disney's looking for, that if everyone who wants one has the opportunity to get one, right, from a liability perspective, they feel more comfortable then. So I would say for your trip mid-October, I would expect to see many more restaurants open. I would expect to see many more attractions reopening. I definitely think we'll see fireworks. And I don't think we're going to be at 35% capacity. If we're not at at least 50% capacity, if not basically full capacity, because 50% is pretty close to full capacity anyway, um, I would be shocked on that one. So I would expect mid-October for you, you know, you probably won't see character greetings. You may not see parades, but most other things will be closer to normal on that. And I'm I'm betting on that. Also, mid-October, I I really think we're going to see Halloween parties. And Disney's just waiting until July or August to, uh, to announce them. So um, good luck for that. Tony had a, a second question. If Trader Sam was deemed too insensitive to remain in the Jungle Cruise attraction, why would Disney not rename the Trader Sam's bars? It's a direct reference to a character that uh, can't exist within the ride. And it seems like a weird choice to allow one, but not the other. Hmm. Oh, sorry. Before I ask Jim this question, you know, I, I think Trader Sam is just a name and only super Disney World nerd fans like us will get that reference. Most people will not connect the two, especially like, you know, 20 years from now. So I think Disney's safe with the, um, with the name. I mean, the other thing too is they could, they could also change the name, right? It's, it's just the name of a, uh, of a bar. In, especially in Walt Disney World, it doesn't have the same sort of historical significance uh, as it does in Disneyland. Jim, what do you think? That seems to me it'd be like a cocktail inspired by the African Queen, one part the essence of Humphrey Bogart, then fold in a dollop of Catherine Hepburn. That's what I always insist upon when I order a beverage, that they be sweaty and stringy. Finally, uh, Rob writes in with this. Um, I have a small objection regarding Jim's telling of the Ohana story. When Jim informed us that Ohana literally means family, he did not do so in the voice of his best Stitch impression. A missed opportunity and a sad day. Ohana means so much to Stitch. Jim, your response? Yeah, that's the kind of Disney synergy that nobody's really asking for. Kind of like the Disney Music Group put out an album where Stitch performed Cher's greatest hits. Though that said, that would make for a very interesting cover if I could turn back time. (coughs) Oh, Jim, that was just great. All right, folks, when we come back, <laughs> when we come back, Jim tells us about the history of the sci-fi dining restaurant at Disney's Hollywood Studios. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just nine. Each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
When Disney MGM Studios theme park opened on May 1st, 1989, there were four things that people immediately raved about. They were the Wicked Witch of the West animatronic in the Wizard of Oz section of the Great Movie Ride. That Sarko's big figure moved with such fluidity there were a number of guests who thought that the witch, just like the, the bank robber and the gangster in that attraction, was being played by a live cast member. Then there was Catastrophe Canyon, which effectively took three parts of the Universal Studios Hollywood Trend Tour. We're talking about the flash flood in the Mexico village, the earthquake, the big one, and then the collapsing bridge. And then folded in a dollop of the that theme park's backdraft show and then crammed all that excitement and effects work into a single two-minute long experience. And then, of course, there was the uh, Hollywood Boulevard section of that theme park, which, when it was all lit up at night with all that great neon, really delivered on the, the promise found on that theme park's dedication plaque, which describes MGM as... The Hollywood that never was, but always will be. And then there was the 50s Primetime Cafe, which quickly became the place to dine whenever you were visiting Disney MGM. And I mean, no disrespect to the Brown Derby, a loving recreation of that Hollywood landmark, but the 50s Primetime Cafe was fun. By that, I mean, as soon as you entered the place and saw all that Formica and all those 50s tchotchkes, you immediately got it. You understood that this place was all about taking a step back in time and eating comfort food. Mom's old-fashioned pot roast, Grandpa's crab cakes, uh, Cousin Megan's traditional meatloaf. And what was especially fun about 50's Primetime Cafe was that the servers were supposed to be a family member. Sometimes it's Mom, who would threaten to withhold dessert if he didn't finish all your vegetables. Sometimes it was your goofy older brother who would, you know, dance at tableside to those brief bits of 50's music that would come out of that black and white television that was placed on everyone's table and as you're sitting there you know, you're watching clips from uh 50s and 60s sitcoms like fathers knows best uh leave it to beaver and uh, i love lucy 50s primetime cafe is a hit right out of the box as was disney M studios park a uh, problem was that for summer there just wasn't enough for people to do that changed toward the end of the summer where after months of technical rehearsals the indiana jones stunt spectacular opened on august 25th and given that the Disney MGM version of Star Tours was being built just down the way from the Epic Stunt Spectacular, well, it was obvious to the Imagineers, given the thousands of tourists who'd be walking past these two George Lucas-inspired attractions every hour, they needed to build a quick-service restaurant between Indy and Star Tours that would handle 100 customers, and not to mention they, they needed lots of additional bathrooms. Len and I really need to talk about this at some point. The mathematical formula that the Imagineers use when they're adding a new ride show or attraction to a theme park. How, depending on what the hourly theoretical capacity of that new ride show attraction is, the Imagineers then have to extrapolate out how many additional bathrooms they need to build in the immediate vicinity so people can go before the show or they can relieve themselves afterwards. Likewise, how much retail space they need to build uh, right at this attraction's exits. And then there's things like, well, well, where should the food carts be located? And will the restaurants that are already in the area be sufficient to meet demand? Or do new eateries now need to be built? Just four days after Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular finally opened, things are complicated math-wise for the Imagineers. This was when Michael Eisner revealed that he just cut a $150 million deal with Jim Henson to acquire Henson Associates, which was the parent company of the Muppets. And now the Muppets were going to be a huge part of the Disney MGM Studios theme park. The Muppets were, were supposed to have their very own land at Disney MGM. 
A full build-out, it would have included, well, the attraction we know today. Uh, Jim Henson presents Muppet Vision 3D. There was also supposed to be The Great Muppet Movie Ride, which was this audio-animatronic-filled parody of The Great Movie Ride. And then uh, there were two restaurants for the land. Uh, There was going to be the Swedish Chef's TV Cooking School. Uh, That was going to be located where Pizza Rizzo is today. And then there was the great Gonzo's Pandemonium Pizza Parlor, which was going to be located where Mama Melrose, Ristorante Italiano, is serving up pasta today. Okay, so Mama Melrose's, back over by the Muppets, was once going to be Gonzo's Pandemonium Pizza. I get the idea of incorporating the Muppets. I think we should have more Muppets in the studios. Who, again, in the Disney dining executive hierarchy there, thought... Food that's been handled by rats, that's what people really, really want. What further complicated this whole situation was Disney's decision in the fall of 89 to discontinue the two-hour-long version of the MGM Backstage Tour. Previously, guests boarded the tram to the left of the Magic of Disney animation attraction. They then rolled past things like the Earful Tower and the Boneyard. And then after experiencing Catastrophe Canyon, they were then offloaded at the Backstage Plaza, where they could do some shopping at the Roger Rabbit-themed Looney Bin or grab a Coke and a burger at the Studio Catering Company before these guests then lined up to do the walking tour portion of the Backstage Tour. After a full summer of operations, Disney MGM officials learned that guests really didn't like doing the two-hour-long version of this theme park's backstage tour. Many of these folks just wanted to opt out of the experience after they'd rolled through Catastrophe Canyon and, and then bypass the backstage tour entirely. So after a test over the 1989 long Thanksgiving weekend, where guests were actually allowed to bail out of the backstage tour after Catastrophe Canyon and then return to the main theme park by uh, walking through areas that had been previously off-limits to guests. You've probably been on the street now, folks. This is that cobblestone street where the old entrance to Toy Story Mania for Disney uh, MGM was located. That's the street that they made the sort of the blow-off. They also opened huge swaths of this theme park that had never been opened to guests before. For example, New York Street which, by the way, did involve having Disney to, to reroute its tram portion of its backstage tour. So picture this. You're the Imagineers, and you're looking at, okay, we built the N.A. Jones Stunt Spectacular. We built Star Tours, and in between, because we need, knew we needed bathrooms and places to people eat, they actually built the Backlot Express. But now we have Muppet Studios, and... It's going to be basically built right behind, for lack of a better term, Lucasland. And it's like, you know, we're going to have an awful lot of foot traffic back there. This is when the Imagineers began to rethink their plan for the theme park. Especially given that at those moments when the Indiana Jones stunts show let out, 2,500 people would suddenly be out in the streets. And it would be difficult to get to Star Tours, it would be difficult to get to Muppet Vision 3D. So they needed a blow-off. They needed a way to, to get people to those attractions without putting them in that huge crowd for the Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular. So they begin looking around for a, a bypass. And what they notice is there's this undeveloped piece of property. Basically, if you start at the exit of the Great Movie Ride, or, or now uh, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, and then continue out behind Superstar Television 
and the monster sound show. I mean, here's this piece of land. So it would allow people to get to the Muppet Studios. It would allow them to get to New York Street without dealing with the crowds at Indiana Jones and Star Tours. It's this stretch of backstage, really didn't have a whole lot going on. But the managers did this very interesting thing. They would always, when they were building uh, a restaurant, they would actually create sort of this massive food service complex that because doors faced in different directions, you think of them as different restaurants, but they'd, they'd share all sorts of backstage areas share things like uh, loading docks and refrigerating units. I mean, for example, if you look at the Hollywood Brown Derby, the soundstage restaurant, the catwalk bar, and starring rolls, that, that's actually one large food complex. Likewise, if you, you look cold-bloodedly at Hollywood and Vine, Cafeteria to the Stars, the 50s Primetime Cafe, and Tune-In Lounge, again, one large complex. And if you think about Pizza Rizzo and Mama Melrose, again, same thing. They, they have commonality with back-of-house stuff. So uh, the Imagineers were looking at this stretch of backstage, you know, from uh, the exit of Great Movie Ride and, uh, you know, out behind Superstar Television and Monster Sound Show. And there wasn't really room there to build a ride, but this is, park is becoming much more popular than, than anybody anticipated. So they needed more food service. So the thinking was, okay, let's do it again. Let's build another giant food service complex that, that has back, you know, common back of house stuff. So first thing that gets signed off on is the Disney MGM Commissary, now known as the ABC Commissary, and a relatively smart decision because, again, people are on vacation. They don't want to spend a, you know, a whole lot of time on meals because they want to get back into the park, so set up a quick service thing. But for that second restaurant that would be sharing the back-of-house space with the Disney MGM Commissary, the entrance to Zedri would basically have to face onto the street where the Star Tours show building with the full-size walker and the Ewok Village, where that was located. So thinking about the Imagineers was like, if we're going to do a full-service restaurant, maybe for this one we do a sci-fi theme, which would then fit in and support the, the story of the attraction that's right across the street. And then you have to remember that all these reports about due to its immense popularity, the 50s primetime cafe is getting slammed every day. And it would definitely help the park from an operations guest flow point of view if Disney MGM had a similar sort of restaurant, one that Central Reservations could recommend to guests if, if there were no tables available that day at the 50s Primetime Cafe. So you take into consideration these two aspects of the project. You got a close proximity to Star Tours, as well as a need for a 50s primetime cafe like eatery to take the heat off of, you know, that super popular Disney MGM restaurant. And so that's how we end up with the sci-fi dine-in theater restaurant. Now, mind you, when this restaurant first opened in April of 1991, it was called the Sci-Fi Drive-In Diner. Which, for some reason, confused guests. They, they supposedly thought, well, wait a minute, I left my car out in the parking lot. How am I supposed to enter a drive-in without a car? Which I know sounds silly, but this actually explains why, after just a few months of operation, MGM actually felt the need to take one of the car-shaped tables from inside of this 250-seat restaurant and park it outside. As if to say, it's not really a drive-in or a diner for that matter. We have tables like any other restaurant, so come on in. All right, Jim, I get the connection between Hollywood Studios, the theme park, and the idea of a drive-in 
sort of food experience. I get sort of the the tie-in on the movie side there, but which, which Disney executive thought that the highlight of their driving experience ever was the food? I mean, I've always thought of driving food as the kind of meal that aspires to be one day the quality of a 7-Eleven. Like one day, if everything goes really, really, really well, like if all of the food is on point, we will have the same quality as those little rotating hot dogs that you see at Bucky's. You know, that's that was my so where what were we going for with this? Also, a lot of us who are film history buffs, what we love about dining at the the sci-fi dine-in theater restaurant is that 45-minute loop of clips of classic, horrible horror films and sci-fi films from the 50s and 60s. And what shocked the people at Imagineering was, compared to how noisy the 50s primetime cafe can sometimes get, the sci-fi diner... You know, when it's got a full restaurant, you know, every table, every seat is taken. And the managers would walk in and there was this deathly silence because everybody was staring up at the movie. All right, Jim, I was at Sci-Fi last week, you know, eating. And the, the thing that I noticed was, you know, even aside from like the fact that nobody between cars, you know, communicated, you know, because of COVID and everything, but like... Even my sister and I, while we were sitting in the car, we basically just uh, ate our food and and watched the movies, which was which was kind of interesting. Maybe it was the uh, the fact that we hadn't seen these film clips in forever. Maybe it was the fact that we were paying twenty eight dollars for a hamburger, and and we sort of had stunned silence about that. But uh, yeah, it was it was kind of interesting. Very very quiet in there. The next time you're in there, pay attention to the cyclorama all around the outside walls of the restaurant, what the Imagineers decided to do is this is actually the view from Glendale, from where Walt Disney Imagineering was located. Now, mind you, when you see the classic old 50s, like telephone poles and that sort of thing, they had the high tension wires, you know, the big steel triangular things, and they had to swap those out. But that's what that view is. You're standing in the Imagineering parking lot. So... You're sitting in there, you're watching horrible movies or clips from horrible movies like Invasion of the Saucer Men. And the restaurant initially really leaned into this whole sci-fi thing. The menu was was filled with names like Attack of the Killer Club Sandwich and The Cheesecake That Ate New York and Tossed in Space Garden Salad. But what Disney found over time is unlike over at the 50s Primetime Cafe where with a menu, you know, menu list items like Grandpa's Crab Cakes or Mom's Traditional Meatloaf. So they're easy to understand. And they also, to the point, support the, the nostalgic feel of the restaurant. Anyway, when it came to the sci-fi drive-in diner, the overly cute names actually slowed down the ordering process. People were confused about what they were ordering. So about the same time that the name of the sci-fi drive-in diner was changed to sci-fi dine-in theater restaurant, the menu went with a much more straightforward take on the name. So you got things like drive-in barbecue a burger or oven-roasted turkey sandwich or chicken pasta. The restaurant definitely benefited from these operational changes. This 260-seat eatery 
quickly grew to rival the popularity of the 50s primetime cafe. In fact, there were days when the staff was really humping along. This full-service restaurant could serve over 2,200 people in a single day. The sci-fi dine-in theater restaurant ultimately proved to be so popular that for a time, the Imagineers actually toyed with adding a clone of this full-service restaurant to Carsland at Disney's California Adventure. And I, I want to ask how many of you recall when you visited the Blue Sky Studio, there was this huge model of the original version of Carsland, and out behind Luigi's Flying Tires, now Luigi's Rollick and Roasters, there was an expansion pad. There was a, a large rectangular building sitting there. This is where the Cars-themed version of sci-fi dine-in theater restaurant was supposed to be built. It would have keyed off of, for those of you who remember the original Cars movie from 2006, the credit scene for the film, John Ratzenberg's character Mac was at the drive-in, and he was making all these jokes about, you know, hey, they keep using that voice actor over and over again in these movies. Okay, so I understand that a sci-fi drive-in came very, very close to being cloned for Cars Land in DCA. I actually think that's not a bad idea at all, um, but it would lead me to have even more questions about the Cars universe than I already have. First of all, um, I don't understand why the Cars in Cars movies have doors. Who's getting inside of them? And if you're getting inside of them, aren't the Cars actually alive at the time? And wouldn't that be kind of strange? The second question I have is just about the Cars universe. Why are there school buses? Who are they for? And my third question is, you know, in that in that um, cow tipping scene, the tractor tipping scene in Cars, who who are those fields of uh, grain for? Like, who is planting them, and who is harvesting them, and for what? I have many questions about the Cars universe, not the least of which is why don't we have a uh, drive-in for it? Because we totally should have. Instead of the sci-fi clips from the fifties and thereabouts. Supposedly, Pixar was on board to do 45 minutes of brand new animation. Mind you, they were also supposed to fold in a few of the, the really good Mater shorts. But same thing. You would have just you know, sat inside of a car and, and you know, had a, you know, a, a wonderful drive-in food-inspired meal. You know, I never really thought of this before. But if you, if you look at a map going sort of from left to right, you've got Baseline Tap House the sci-fi dining theater and the ABC commissary all sharing back of house. In fact, sci-fi and ABC also share bathrooms. So, and they all back up to galaxy's edge, which is really interesting. So they probably share like kitchen loading dock, food storage stuff, but you got to think, you got to think at night, right? Just because of where they are relative to the, to the rest of the park, right? Like it's Florida. You would normally think that a restaurant has like a raccoon problem, but given the fact that they're right next to Galaxy's Edge, they've probably got a Wookiee problem at night. I wonder what the garbage cans look like. Like what kind of security measures you've got to put on those to make sure that they're Wookiee proof? Hmm. Sadly, that formerly empty expansion pad is now part of the Anaheim version of the Adventures Campus. So Disney's Hollywood Studios version of sci-fi dine-in theater restaurant will remain a one and only. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. I'm actually going to save my review of sci-fi for next week so Jim and I can talk about it together. Um, in the meantime, please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including the Joseph Mankiewicz series on ideas Disney had for Epcot 
way back in the 1970s. On next week's show, Jim and I will be back together and we're going to talk about how Disney has developed its food court concepts over the years from sunshine seasons at the land to landscape of flavors at Art of Animation. I think this is food month for us for some reason. Anyway, it's making me hungry. Anyway, you can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be DJing the Fargo Taco and Margarita Fest on Saturday, May 1st from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the North Dakota Horse Park on 19th Avenue North in beautiful downtown Fargo, North Dakota. That sounds like what happens if when you order a taco in North Dakota. What's the matter? You don't like it? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I, I just wasn't expecting quite so much walleye. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.